Hey everyone, really happy to say today's episode is brought to you by BCB Group. You're going to be hearing more about them later on in the show, but for now, let's go to today's interview, which is a very special conversation with Porter Collins and Vincent Daniel. I am so glad to have you both here. Welcome Porter Collins and Vincent Daniel of Seawolf Capital. Thanks. Great to be here. Love being here. So you two are well known for being uh, very pivotal in the big short in the 2008 financial crisis, uh, shorting housing and housing bonds via credit default swaps. That's really what I'm going to be a tangential to what we're uh, our talk today. What where I want to start is with a comment that you made to me, Porter, earlier, that you were the last investors to fight the Fed and win in 2008. And that that might not have been an advantage in the last decade of, t- of the 2010s. Tell, tell us quickly about how you, what you mean when you said uh, bet against the Fed. And then also, why did that sort of psychology that was built, why was that perhaps a disadvantage in the last decade? Well, you know, a, a lot of investing is, you know, where you came from, how you grew up, how you were taught. And, you know, we, we grew up and we lived through, you know, Vinny lived through the, the uh, subprime auto crisis. I, I wasn't quite in the business yet then. And then in the the dot com crash, and then the the 08 crash, and so you know we obviously have a bearish tilt to us because we've seen and and we cover financials, and so you see rolling credit cycles all the time. Whether and if you do on a global basis, you see Japan blow up. You see you just you wherever there's growth, eventually it dies and stuff blows up. And so having lived through different cycles, um, you know I think we have that bias, and then. You know, when when 08 hit, you know, we were really on point. We knew what was going on. We saw it in the data. We, we knew where all the, the bonds were hiding, and, and, and we were really ahead of things. And we knew the Fed was behind the curve, and they, they really missed it. And so, you know, when, when, so when they did QE1 and then QE2, you know, we were sort of laughing, like, these guys don't know what they're doing. Like they, and then, then QE3 and 4 and 5, it just kept coming. And so, you know, obviously we don't have a ton of respect for them. I mean, you have to, but uh, I mean, that probably hurt us, uh, definitely hurt us last cycle. I mean, we didn't believe in all the sort of run up in tech valuations and all that kind of stuff. And so we, we sort of, we missed out. I mean, I mean, poorly, we just didn't, we didn't profit like, you know, we were, we're not Chase Coleman. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so I, I came on the show, I can answer it just going a little further back. I came to work on Wall Street in 1996, first on the sell side, and then eventually came to work with Steve Eisman, Port Collins, Brad Burning, Danny Moses. Uh, that was our first foray onto the buy side. And throughout our career, I'll speak my career, um, the element of the, the concept of price discovery has eroded, right? So there used to be price discovery in markets, but slowly but surely, the Fed has prohibited any material deviations uh, in price discovery to the downside. So I th- when I think about Porter's comment that he had to you in terms of we were the last to fight the Fed and win, we were truly the last to be allowed to experience price discovery on the short side, right? After the great housing crisis, I think the Fed, rightly or wrongly, and we think wrongly, but others can think otherwise, price discovery to the downside was not going to be allowed no matter what. And so for the last 12, 13 years, I think one of the primary roles of the Fed was to suppress any form of price discovery to the downside. And that's very difficult for us. 
right? Um, you know, every time when we felt like, you know, we were about to kick the football, Lucy would pull it away. Um, and it wasn't that we wanted to be bearish. It's just that there were circumstances that, that presented themselves that we should have been bearish. But you come to learn that the Fed was not going to allow you to act and invest the way you wanted to. And I think that, you know, I don't go crazy about QE1 because, you know, if you've read the book or seen the movie, you know, there's a point where we're, we're sitting on, on uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral steps and we really, you know, like I, I don't, I hate people that go, oh, I think the market's going to crash. This is, that was the one time where I, we all thought the market was going to crash because the banking system was just completely insolvent and everything was just broken. And we were, we were legitimately scared that like we weren't the market wasn't going to open, the banks weren't going to open, and so, um, you know, and so that that from that point on, like the Fed was like, oh, this is never happening again, and um, you know, they've they've had the spigots on ever since. Mm. And so the, the banking system in oh seven oh eight oh nine is in complete turmoil. At what point did you stop becoming bearish on on the banks? I know at this juncture you sort of have a long term view that is not super bearish, but you definitely do not see a lot of upside in traditional financial banking. You know, deposit, borrow short, lend long because of flat yield curves, which yeah. we can get into shrinking net interest margins. But uh, how have you sort of what tell us about how you've witnessed the, the banking industry evolve over the past year, uh, past ten years with Dodd Frank? Uh, and sort of how that has impacted the, the business model. Well, you know, if, if for those who lived through, you know, 08, 09, like you remember the, like the months and in, in right before uh, March uh, when Vinny's uh, son was born, uh, Vinny's son was born the, the day the market bottomed. Wow. Yeah. Beginning of the bull market, March 9th, yeah. 2010. But, wow. you know, we were sitting there in February. We were sitting there in February, in late February buying stocks. We were buying banks. I remember, like, we were, we'd try to go, like, the highest quality banks we could find. We were, we were buying them. And they were going down, like, 10, 12, 15% a day at that point. Because pe people at that point just, you know, they were, you know, maybe they tried to buy, I forget how it worked, but they were trying to buy the, buy the dip, buy the dip. And then it just went puke. They puked everything. And, um, you know, the, the, the Fed came in and, gave, you know, Goldman and all these guys money and sort of stabilized the system. You know, the no nine was a very good year for us. Uh, you know, we were 40% or something like that. Oh, nine was fun. Yes. And, and oh, it was stressful. <laughs> very. So the way we think about keeping it simple, the way we think about financial services entities, there's really two KPIs, key performance indicators. One is net interest margins, as you mentioned. The other is credit. Uh, in early 2009, or credit quality, in early 2009, you were at peak charge-offs for the financial services system. Uh, and these stocks were trading at tremendous discounts to book value, tangible book value. So just on a simple risk-reward basis and saying, well, and at that point in time, Porter and I said, well, and you picked, I remember, see, you remember by the months, you even remember some of the stocks that you chose yep. going along. You chose the most, the highest quality bank at the time, U.S. Bank. Yep. I chose American Express. We wanted to go long them. And the view was, if we're wrong, then the whole world's over. Because if these things go under, nothing's going to work. And that's how low these stocks were relative to where they were, 
and the like. And that's the, that's the initial reason why we got bullish on the financials at that point in time. And then you had an entire recapitalization of the banking system as Dodd-Frank was coming through the pipe, which made us very bullish on financials. But then at a certain point, then what you're left with are entities that are well capitalized, which is great, but they don't necessarily have um, great prospects for them going forward. Rates are low, credit quality is already already snapped back, and the valuations have, have come to normal. Since that time, I would say for us, the financial services industry, the regulated financial services industry, the banks and the like, have been more trading opportunities as opposed to investments because they've become effectively utilities and wards of the state slowly but surely. I mean, the, the Fed did such a bad job of supervision. Uh, you know, Vinny and I have this running debate of who's the worst Fed president ever between Bernanke and Greenspan. And I, I always say Greenspan because he, he allowed all this mess to start to, to start with, with the, you know, the non-regulation of the financials. But after, you know, after 08, they, they heavily regulated them. And, you know, one of the tools for a, a company is the use of its balance sheet, right? They can, you can, you know, if you're a, if you're a balance sheet intensive company, you can either shrink and buy back stock or whatever, but uh, the banks weren't allowed to do anything. I mean, they, they, they once a year, you know, finally, I think they got permission in like 2015 to maybe return capital or something like that. But, you know, they couldn't do anything. They couldn't return capital. They couldn't buy back their own stocks. They had to ask permission for the dividend. And they, you know, they were, you know, like bad kids. They were, they had to ask for everything. And so, um, yeah, the, 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 the financial, regulated financial system has, has been in a, in sort of a, uh, Bad, in a been a bad way for a while. So, so you said bad kids. The, the kids did behave pretty badly. They did. Jack, they behaved so badly to the point where it made sense. So when we think about walking into the Great Recession, uh, one of the, the simple little ratios we looked at was a bank's capital relative to its asset size, right? Tangible common equity, as we like to call it. Forget about even the regulated aspects of tier one and, and all the other Basel type of ratios. This is just simple balance sheet. The large banks had, for every $100 of assets they had, they had in the range of between $2 and $2.50 of equity. So 50 to 1 leverage. Correct. And 50 to 1 leverage on assets in collateralized by housing that were significantly overvalued. I mean, that's just... So when you talk about bad actors horrifically bad actors. So they needed to be penalized. It made all the sense in the world that the regulators did what they did. But as someone who invests in these companies, you, you could see, safely say to yourself, well, I really shouldn't be looking at these companies as viable investments after they reverted to a much more normal valuation. Unlike uh, Vinny, who models everything, I mean, he roll forwards credit and, you know, does all these great models. Steve really didn't do any modeling. He, he, he modeled two things. And well, first was he, he modeled Citigroup's balance sheet. Just, I think he just had leverage. He just did equity yeah. assets and something else. And then Deutsche Bank towards the end, when it got bad, he started doing that Deutsche yeah. Bank as well. But that was the only two things he kind of ever modeled. But I give him credit. I mean, that's all you really needed to look at at the yeah. time. Yeah. And, and he, you know, nailed the fact that he used to, <laughs> Whenever City reported, he was like a kid in a candy store, waiting to just put his simple balance sheet in 
and to see where the ratio was. And then, of course, he would go and call every single analyst and, and tell them about, about this stupid, simple ratio. But it was so correct. They just did not have enough capital. There's some fantastic Steve stories through the crisis. I mean, you know, his, uh, when he attacked, um, what was that certified lender? Oh, uh, IndyMac. IndyMac. Uh, that was, the call was, was just priceless. If you could go back and listen to, there's a transcript, if you could get your hold of it where he got very upset that the CEO at the time of IndyMac, Mike Perry, uh, yelled at a young analyst. And, and, and Steve felt like he owed the community to, so he gets on the call. At that time, they allowed buy-side people on the call, which you don't really do that much anymore. And he effectively, he berated Mike Perry on the call. And the stock got shellacked. Shellacked. I mean, just... I mean, as soon as Steve started speaking, the stock was just gapping down a <laughs> dollar at a time. So they failed. Yes, yeah. they did. Yeah. Uh, to to very few at the time, yourselves included, it was evident how ridiculous that was where you had something rated AAA, but it was comprised of stuff that was nowhere close to AAA. And that was being allowed to, to be on the bank's balance sheet at a certain ratio as if it was a, a treasury bond or something like that. Looking back now to everyone, that is very ridiculous and you know pretty nuts. Is there anything right now at this time in 2022 that is as nuts as that? Mm -hmm. It's be interesting. I mean, to me, what's as nuts right now is not necessarily something I see on company balance sheets. It's really the leverage associated and the money printing associated with the central bank. And, and what we view as you know, expanding the Fed balance sheet. What happened in March 2020, which I understand what we needed to do, but to effectively expand the balance sheet by three to four trillion dollars, um, to me, and, and still call the United States a AAA sovereign credit, right? Um, to me, that's the baffling part now, is that we've taken what I think, for me, the risk that we saw in on bank balance sheets. Now I feel it significantly more so in sovereign balance sheets, right? Understanding the fact that I that there are theories out there that we can never ever go bankrupt, that we could simply just print money and inflate our way out of the out of the problem. But in and of itself, think about that statement, right? Like, oh, we're in such dire straits, we're just gonna inflate our way out and you know financially depress every person that decides to own a fixed income instrument of any kind. Um, that to me is the the wow, what are we doing here type moment for me. I didn't think you were going there, but the, the, where did you uh, think I was going? Well, I thought you were going to go uh, attack the you know valuations uh, of tech yeah, stocks you and do crypto that. and stuff like that. It, listen, I, I think it's it's pretty clear to me that that it, we're in a pretty big bubble. I mean, in terms of you know, Bitcoin was great, right? They they had a nice little simple idea, you know, store of value can't uh can't debase it but then you know 4999 other coins came along and effectively debased bitcoin and you know you still have Elon Musk out there you know <laughs> saying he'll you know give dogecoin away or or whatever I don't know what he was talking about recently but some something stupid uh is why do we even have dog coins i mean the whole thing is bananas uh, and then um you know paying 50 times revenues uh, is just pure insanity. You know, and, and these are, 
These are tech companies which, you know, arguably can be, um, you know, disintermediated in, in 10 years from now, right? And, you know, who's to say that their technology is the right technology? And, you know, there, there's a thousand companies going after payments and there's not going to be, you know, that many winners. And so paying these crazy valuations is just, is not smart in my opinion. You're referring to very high valued on traditional metrics companies like Tesla, Shopify, yep. uh, DocuSign, those sorts of companies, companies that over the past decade have done phenomenally well. And they also led the way from March 2020 into, let's say, February, March 2021. However, they've had a rough uh, past year. And I think perhaps the poster child of that is uh, the uh, ARKK um, um, ticker. Yep. How have you sort of made sense of that? Because just reading your, your, your letter, you said uh, the next big short is in the, the big debt cycle uh, on sovereign banks, which is you alluded to earlier, Vincent. But then you said, and this is, I believe, in your 2021 letter, that currently the way is not to short companies because the Fed is will be fighting against the Fed. Now it is 2 p.m. on uh, Wednesday, the 26th. Oh, yeah. And we, the Fed minutes have, uh, the, the FOMC statement has been released. We haven't read it yet. Powell will start speaking in 23 minutes, and perhaps we can pull that up later. But now that the Fed is tapering its balance sheet, uh, may soon tighten, be a quantitative tightening, uh, may, may raise rates as soon as March. Um, and we'll see, it's, it's been released. Uh, now you say that now is the time to short. And you also said that you very quickly are okay with going from being very long to being way less long uh, as the situation changes. And then how, you know, now you, that you run a family office, you, you don't have to sort of have clients call you and say, what the hell are you doing? Right. Um, can you just talk about why you shifted from being very long to start to go active on the short side as you have been over the past few months? I, it's for us, for me, and I think for Porter, the, the key ingredient to ch that changed our mind was Fed intent and inflation, right? So what do we have now? The last CPI print, and the last few CPI prints were well, well, well north of the two or the averaging of 2% that the Fed uh, said that they wanted. So That wasn't that long ago when they said that. No, it wasn't. <laughs> and think about what that does. Well, first off, they were wrong on in terms of how high they thought this was going to go. They've been wrong so far on the idea that all of this would be transitory. But probably more important than that, the politicians are now getting a lot of angst towards them from voters crying, rightfully so, about the levels of inflation. So for us, what that does is it, it, it forces the Fed to, to hike, to be more hawkish, and they can no longer bail out markets, at least at this point in time, right? Because one of their key mandates is to fight inflation. They have to fight inflation. So there's no way they can look at ARC or Shopify or any of the stocks that have come cascading down and do like they did over the past 12, 13 years and about face and, and save markets. They can't do it right now. That's what gave us, in our view, the ability to have the ability to short stocks and feel comfortable about it. All the other ingredients that we wanted to short the stocks were there, overvaluation, sometimes negative rates of change, 
uh, various other factors, insider selling. The one thing that wasn't there that was the most important thing was Fed intent and Fed intent has changed. You know, so we were going nuts on this MMT thing. And, you know, so we would always ask, like, what's what's when does it stop? And the, the, the Achilles heel always for the MMT crowd was inflation. And so, you know, with the 7% inflation, you know, prints, we effectively killed the MMTers. Like, they were just dead wrong. And, um, and the Fed's just in a box. And so it was that kind of combination with, you know, we clearly saw the bubble, but, you know, the, but pricking it is another thing. And so, um, you know, we were very long last year and, you know, for the first half. And then in June, uh, Powell definitely pivoted, remember, because he went from, you know, we're not even thinking about thinking about uh, hiking rates. And so in, in, in June, he pivoted and you can see, you know, a lot of the turmoil uh, yeah. happened then. You know, we, you know, you could actually like arc peaked, I think, in, in March yep. and we, we, were, we shorted it probably right around then. Yeah, um, I'm trying to remember exactly when we, we started shorting arc, but it definitely had something to do with listening to Powell's statements and realizing that the error of, of significant accommodation was over. So then all of a sudden you had the ability to, to actually put your fundamental hat back on uh, and, and actually just look at some of the stuff and say, this is crazy. I mean, the funny thing today is that, you know, the, the market's caught 10, down 10% for the year. I think it's a number, maybe less. And, the whole market's crying, right? And like, oh, we're about to have a, a uh, policy error. They haven't even finished QE yet. Yeah. It's, it's bananas. Like, these people are just insane. I, I don't get it. And, you know, I, and the whole tech narrative or the, the growth bros, as Vinny calls them, <laughs> they, they, you know, they're like, it's like fake bearishness, right? They, they think the, you know, the economy is really bad, so therefore rates should stay low, so therefore their valuations stay high. Yeah, the whole thing is perverse, but yeah, uh, to play a devil's advocate, I think one of the core tenets of, of MMT is that the government's balance sheet is not like a household balance sheet. So if uh, I'm curious if you agree with that, like if, if a household spends more than it earns, it has to it has to borrow, but it can't just create you know its own its own currency. Whereas a, gov a government can, and I'm, I'm curious if you agree with that because I think that if the bubble on the government's balance sheet were on, let's say, a bank's, private bank's balance sheet, I think perhaps you would have, you guys would be more, much more active in shorting. But it's, it seems like you, you recognize that you, you can't take on the government. Well, a few things to keep in mind. Yeah. Um, one, you are right. Governments are there and they could expand their balance sheets significantly more than we can. Um, interesting. And, and they should. And, and they should. And, and they should. And they should at times. And, and the, the, the problem with, you know, the, the, they went... You know, we, we used to rail on, on Keynes, but he, he obviously said in good times, you don't need this accommodation, you know, and, and actually be counter-cyclical. This time they just went, they went crazy. Right. And a good thing like that can go too far. And I think we've gone too far. So, yes, government should be there to expand, expand the spending when, when we are going into slower times. You are correct. However... You can't do it for 13 years straight, right? And we've been doing it for 13. And you can't expand the way you did over the past three years, which has created inflationary pressures. And now the people who have been buying our government debt, which hasn't been foreigners, really hasn't been domestic savers, all the banks have bought 
bought some, it's really been the Federal Reserve, right? Which is therefore also included and added to the inflationary pressures that we're having and it allows governments to spend money. So too much of expansion of balance sheet or some of us call it, you know, digitized money printing. That's actually Powell's words in 60 minutes, not mine, I could say it. You know, we as a central bank, we have the ability to create money uh, digitally. It's, it was too much of a good thing. And I think we're suffering from it from it right now. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked about this for years, but, you know, the, the, the whole economy is such a, so financialized, right? Everything we, you know, we see it, everything that you buy is on leverage, you know, cars, houses, you know, stocks, you know, I mean, look at the, look at the, you know, I, I remember going back and looking at the, oh, the 2000 bubble, you know, they, they had the, the margin debt, retail margin debt. Well, we were way past where they were in, in 2000. And so um, I just don't know that um, we're, we're even more financialized than we were, call it 10 years ago. I, I just don't think that the world can handle QT, quantitative tightening, and hiking, uh, you know, I think they need to hike to control inflation, but I just don't think they can. I think we're, 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 we're so far past the point of uh, no return at this point. So you think that it's unlikely that the Federal Reserve will be as hawkish as some perceived? Do you, th- you, think, do you think the four to five rate hikes that's priced into the Fed funds? There's, too many, things, there's too many things to balance. They, they're, they're trying to balance inflation. They're trying to, uh, you know, someone needs to buy our debt. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to keep the wealth effect. It's just there's they're they're trying to engineer this this you know perfect landing, you know. Okay, uh, I just don't think they can do it. And you know, for now, if they do some engineer some sort of soft landing, you know, we we still think that the a lot of these value stocks can do better than than growth stocks. I mean, just they're just a lot cheaper. We like to deal with prop- improbabilities and. Nothing certain, but the one thing that feels close to certain, I can't see them doing QT. I can't, I can't see them doing four hikes this year and two to three hikes next year. It's just too much stress on the system. And and so far we've seen the interesting thing for us is going to be for all of us is going to be okay. The S and P is down, seems to have a ten percent drawdown. The the Qs have had a fifteen percent drawdown. Uh, if we get where the S&P has a 15% drawdown, how does the Fed feel, right? What do they do? Because then all of a sudden you're starting to balance the inflationary forces that they're feeling, not just inflation, but from, from the politicians to, let's fast forward the clock, the angst that people are feeling because FANG stocks are down 20% and there's a huge wealth effect. And it's going to be interesting to see which one they choose. And I was listening to a podcast with Jared Dillon, and I think he's completely correct. Uh, they're going to have to choose either a recession or inflation. And I'm kind of in agreement with him. They're probably going to go somewhere in the middle. But at some point, they're going to have to make a decision. I, don't, I think the decision right now for them is easy. We have to fight inflation. I mean, President Biden is, is going on in every single press conference, and he's actually tilted towards the Fed to say, do something about it. It's hard for me to believe they're going to, do a 180 and start becoming accommodative again. I love Jared. And I think the full extent of his thesis is not only is the Fed going to try and choose the middle path between a recession and inflation. I think what he said is that 
if they do that, they might actually cause both. Correct. They do that. Yeah. And and the so far, for again, for the past 10, 12 years, the Fed's words, they've learned that their words are just as important a policy tool as actually, and it's actually even more useful in actually doing something. So I believe that they're at some point they're going to try and change the verbiage of the narrative of hawkishness from super hawkish to less hawkish, hoping that the markets reprieve. I think we're going to get both. I I I'd be more. I think it's more probable that we that Jared's right and that we get both rather than we get one or the other. Where I'm unsure right now is the the path of the economy without um, quantitative easing, without fiscal stimulus. Yeah. And, you know, without the fiscal stimulus, child tax credits, you pulling all that stuff out. And without the wealth effect of, of all these stocks going up like they, they have, you know, I, I just, I don't know how much pull forward is in, in the actual economy, right? You know, how much extra tech spending happened in, you know, how much, you know, extra baseballs at Dick's Sporting Goods did we buy? You know, the, the economy could do okay for the next year, um, but... Again, our, our biggest issue is 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 the sovereign leverage. There's not that much that they're they're, they're out of bullets. So at this point, yeah. the consumer balance sheets and the and the, and the, the corporate balance sheets are fine. You know, they, they, the the uh, the debt the uh, government took on all the debt. Uh, why is it that you think that quantitative tightening or, or just uh, monetary tightening, whether it's raising rates or QT? will be good for value stocks, but not good for those hyper growth stocks. You know, one could argue, and perhaps uh, you know, an analyst at uh, ARK Invest might, that this sort of uh, tightening of monetary policy, is, you're right, it's gonna be bad for demand. So people are gonna be ordering less. They're gonna be spending less. So shipping rates are gonna go down. People are gonna be traveling less. There's gonna be less demand for energy. Um, but in that environment, of, and I'm not saying I believe this, but in that environment of uh, uh, growth slowing, as you say, uh, growth slowing is good for growth stocks. What, what do you make of that? I mean, listen, we, we, we've been long shipping stocks for a while. And if you look at the, uh, the shipping estimates, um, you know, they, 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 they've factored in, you know, 50% cut to EPS this year and then another 50% next year. So they, I mean, it's factored in. Right. They, they, and and they get forward priced earnings of like three, right? Uh, it's like or one. lower. Yeah. 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 And listen, and these companies have tremendous amounts of cash, and funny enough that that shipping rates haven't come down, and so, you know, we, we like to, um, you know, always press on. If you have a thesis, you know, figuring out where where the consensus is wrong, and, and you know, just like you know, we were big in oil and gas stocks, and and the you know the curve was severely backwarded, and we just believe that was wrong, right? And then. Um, the same thing with with uh, with shipping, like the, the the rates were super backwardated, and so we just thought that was wrong, and so it, it it's playing out right now for us. But um, you know that, that that's why we like to do it. And I also think about it from bottom up, top down thesis, which Porter gave a lot of the bottom up. The the underlying fundamentals of things like shipping are phenomenal. Just the the demand side, as well as more importantly, almost the supply side. Um, they're just not making. They were not making that many ships for the past five to seven years. But to get back to your question, because I think it's interesting, you are right. If they tighten too much, we are going to have significantly slower economic growth, and all these value names are not going to work. That's my opinion. 
and and it is our view that at some point it's our view that the feds is not looking to tank the economy if 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 we were of the perspective that we were truly in a Volcker moment where they were actually going to send us into a recession to fight the inflation that we're seeing right now then we should not belong any of the names that were long i just don't i don't believe that i believe at some point the fed is going to quote blink they are going to acquiesce to markets i didn't think it was going to be i don't think it's now i could be another 10% in the s&p but at some point they're going to change their tune and change their narrative such that they're not as hawkish as people think and they're going to have to do that because you are right they they will tank the economy if they tighten money too hard i just i don't that to me that's not highly probable right now and and from our perspective is you know the the way we're thinking about it is that we're, we're sitting on now almost all long-term capital gains on this stuff and you know if things turn down we're just going to heave them overboard right they'll be gone nice. and so we'll we'll, nice we'll be we'll be we'll be in cash and so we, listen we have that ability and it's one of the reasons we 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 set up like we are you know and, and so you know sometimes you just don't want to do anything sometimes doing nothing sitting in cash is a, is a great idea or and sitting on sitting in gold or something something safe mm. uh, can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to short stocks <laughs> When you, yeah, I know. Painful. <laughs> when, yeah, when, yeah uh, really, really tough. When you, um, how should I say this? You know, a stock. Some stocks they say it's, it's a bottom. Oh, the stock has gone down eighty percent. It only can go down twenty percent more. No, a stock down eighty percent can go down eighty percent. And you know, people who said, "Oh, Bear Stearns, it went from fifty dollars to twenty dollars. It's a buy." They obviously that was incredibly wrong. Uh, you know, likewise, there are people saying, "Hey, this stock was trading at fifty price to sales." Now it's at 20 price to sale, so it's a bargain. Um, I take it you don't agree with that, but is there some point at which, let's say, Peloton's at $2 a share where you're saying, hey, this is actually a buy? Well, let's kind of, we, could, we can go deeper into, into this, but, you know, from, from financial guys, we, we were originally financial guys, and there's basically no capital left in, in people running financials, like long-only finance. There's no one left. Right, one of our friends today, uh, one of the sort of last hedge funds standing, he got redeemed because he was the best performing fund last year, but he didn't have an extra compliance officer. I mean, that, that's how stupid people are. But that aside, the uh, they, 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 there's no there's no money, right? They, they, these people don't they don't control assets. Look, how many people control energy funds? Like, there's just not there's none there. All the incremental capital, almost exclusively has gone to people with a growth mandate right look at all the all the hedge funds they're they're all down the same because they all own the same stocks right because all the flows t- went to tiger went to co2 went to d1 you know god bless them but they're you know they're billionaires because they've gotten all the flows and uh you know the rest of the the old economy stocks are just hated. They're just, I mean, still today, they're, they're just hated. The, the, you know, the you know, energy sector goes up and be like, oh, God, I got to buy these stocks, I guess. You know, it's <laughs> like, you know, they just hate them. And you can see that, you know, in the past, we, we've been remarking, you know, because in 16, you know, we own value stocks too. And when everything sold off, value stocks went down more than tech did. Really? And so, and so we, we're sitting there going, oh, man, oh, we're going to get, demolished in our in our value stocks this year and surprisingly they've actually gone up uh and well our shorts have gone down it's yeah. it's 
It's the first energy, time we've seen this in a long yeah. time. Year to date energy, I think, is the only S and P sector to be up. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. So I was the way I was thinking about it. So I've seen two bear cycles right now, and I've been in a seat, a professional seat, where I've seen two bear cycles. The first time uh, I was on the sell side, that was the '99 tech bubble, and then of course the Great Recession. Both of them are different. So to answer your question, like for something, the 50 times sales was the '99 2000 cycle. So if you just go and take a look at some of the charts that were that the then high flyers, right? Whether it was the Cisco's, the Amazons. Um, interestingly enough, uh, MicroStrategies is, is I can I call it the bubble cockroach. They, <laughs> they were take a look. It was a big bubble stock in '99 as well. But look at the price to sales migration of those on the first one, and they were trading at 20, 30, 40 times sales. And they went all the way down to two to three or, or one or four times sales. So, so when someone says to me, 50 times sales to 20 times sales is a bargain, experiencing 99 and 2000, you start to laugh. You try to laugh internally because they didn't go through the cycle, but you are laughing saying, uh, young person, you better really do your history on this one. With Bear Stearns, them getting cut in half, that's a function of leverage, right? So that's what, what causes, so there's two ways to short a stock. One is valuation, and when the Fed's not on your side, you can't short anything like that. But when there's leverage involved, we can go from being a very viable, profitable company to bankrupt in a matter of weeks. Um, so, but to get to the other question. Look at, look at uh, the, uh, my favorite example these days is AMC. Yeah. You know, uh, it's, uh, you know, Infinity times EBITDA, the, the leverage. It's just it's crazy how much leverage they have, and they'll never make money. I mean, maybe they'll have a quarter here and there, but they'll never make money. And so, you know, if, it's going to get, you know, they're going to, it's going to go, you know, when people stop going to the movie theater and they finally figure out what normalized EBITDA is, stocks can get creamed. Yeah, but I want to get bullish for a second. So, <laughs> so no, I'm serious. So, if you think about what happened in 2000, let's take Peloton. I'm not saying we're not, we're not long the stock. But there is a level, if, if your balance sheet is correct, and, there, and if there are underlying assets in the company that are worth something, at a certain price, it might take longer than people like, and I, we could get into the concept of, that we believe wholeheartedly in duration, but at a certain point, there, is gonna, there might be intrinsic value in a name like Peloton, but then you have to start doing work. Is the balance sheet okay? How's the cash burn? What are the assets worth? And then I think there will be tremendous opportunities on the long side when we get there. And, that, and that's what we saw in 99-2000 was that a lot of these broken down or, or text names that didn't work, Amazon was probably exhibit A, um, there was tremendous opportunities. And, and I think that's going to happen. We just got to get through this negative part of the, uh, the cycle. I mean, look, look what's happened to the, the energy sector is that you know, post, you know, them melting all this money in the shale packs, you know, they've had to really show a lot of discipline and people didn't believe them that they're going to cut their debt. They didn't believe them that they're actually going to return capital to the shareholders. And once they finally did that, you know, you, you got the investors back. But, you know, it, when you burn investors, you know, people just don't come back for a while. Um, and so that that's, that's, you know, that's what I see right now. And, and, and if any of these tech companies do you know, burn investors like Peloton has, it's going to take a while for them to come back in full force. They just won't trust them. They won't trust management that, they, um, that they're going to do the right thing. Mm. I mean, plus the fact, these 
tech stocks, the, the management teams have paid themselves so lavishly. I mean, how much money did, it, did, did the CEO take out? You know, millions of dollars. You know, uh, Musk, you know, can't fail at this point. He, he, he took so much money out of, the, out of the company. Yeah. And not just lavish compensation for executives, but for just everyone working there, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've got a lot more questions, but should we take a, a quick break just to take a look at what Powell said and then maybe w- listen to his speech a little bit? Sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This episode is brought to you by BCB Group, Europe's leading provider of crypto-friendly business banking for institutions in the crypto space. They also provide trading services, allowing you to trade FX and cryptocurrency quickly and at scale. They specialize in efficient execution of large orders in illiquid markets. So if you are an institution looking to make high volume trades, you need to check out BCB Group because a great trade idea is worth nothing if you can't execute it. And that is exactly what BCB Group helps you to do. Their mission is to empower the global financial revolution through sustainable and innovative banking. Really glad to have them as a sponsor. So if you want to take control of your digital assets, please check them out at bcbgroup.com slash jack. That's bcbgroup.com slash jack. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. We just came at a quick five-minute break to see what the uh, Fed said, what were the results of the FOMC meeting. Appears it was less hawkish than the most hawkish scenario, and that a two uh, 50, base, 50 basis point hike is most likely off of the table. Uh, Vincent, rather than asking you about, about what's going on now, I, you sent me a piece by, uh, by Politico about a, a Fed chair, uh, excuse me, a member of the uh, Fed, Thomas Honig, one of the very few people at the Fed to vote against quantitative easing in, was it 2010? Yep. And he, he was a big fan of uh, Paul Volcker, worked with him, and he said that asset inflation and consumer price inflation, goods inflation, service inflation, are like cousins. Uh, the reason that the Fed has been able to do so much QE over the past decade, one might argue, is because it's been disinflationary. The Fed has failed to meet its inflation goal of 2%. And so that's what has allowed it. Is Now that inflation is at 7%, you know, do you think that the cousins are going to, are going to sort of meet? Or do you think that we'll, we will go back to a world in which it's sort of like one cousin's in New York and one's in California and they don't really... It's a deeper question, yeah. right? Uh, so a few things you said, and I'm going to finish it. Like for the last decade, uh, we have not met our inflation expectations. I personally think that's bullshit. Um, I actually think that inflation was running hotter than what, what CPI was suggesting. And I guess I'm one of these crazy conspiracy theories that believes in more of the shadow stats that inflation was higher. Nevertheless, if we, if this we get fact that if, I, I, Well, no, a lot of people disagree. Anyway, um, it, in my opinion, what Honig was getting at, right, way back when, and, and look, if we, that article really got to the essence of what he was trying to get at was that if you do this, the benefits are going to be disproportionately disproportionate to extremely wealthy people at the expense of Main Street and the middle class. Uh, and once you open up the kimono of, of purchasing paper via QE, um, you're never going to get off it. Right? He's dead right. Now, it's very hard being alone the center, particularly in a, in, in a meeting where everyone is is browbeating you and from my understanding honing is not part of the inner circle anymore because of what he said um however i actually think he was probably the one adult in the room 
that realize what were the implications of what we did. Now, going if you remember, Meredith uh, Whitney was mm-hmm. a big Tom Honing fan, uh, yes. you can call it, 10 years ago. And she through her, we actually got to speak and meet with him. Yeah. Um, so, but now I think you have a much more interesting dynamic associated with inflation. Yes, it's at 7%. Yes, we're going to have base effects. Yes, the, the, the non-inflationary transitory people have a tailwind at their back that the base effects that by definition, the inflation is going to go lower. We're spending a little bit more time thinking about what's going to happen to core inflation, rents, wages. And I, I actually think the key variable that I, I will be tracking is have we broken the 40-year spell against labor in terms of pricing power? Uh, we'll see. But I think it's slightly more probable than it's been in my career that labor might have some hand in terms of wage price appreciation. Well, while we're talking stories, well, I, I, I want to tell this one, or I'll let you tell this one about our meeting with Bernanke, which, yes. is, which is a pretty good one. Should I tell that one? Well, well uh, sure. The, 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 the only part I want, I want to chime in is that Vincent was very much like his mentor, Steve, for, for the meetings. You know, Steve... Whenever he had a big meeting, he'd be very excited and go sit next to the CEO to ask his one question, then he'd get up and leave. But uh, so when, when Bernanke, uh, you know, that we, were, we were instructed not to ask any tough questions, and Vincent's super excited, sits right next to, to uh, the Bernanke and go for it, Vince. And sorry, this was uh, after, well after 2008. Um, so we, at that time, I want to call it 2018 maybe? Yeah. Worked at a very large, large um, hedge fund for a brief moment of time, of which... Moment of weakness. Yes. Of which Bernanke was a consultant for that very, very large hedge fund. Um, and the various departments got to meet with the Bernanke, right? And, and he could espouse his wisdom on us. Um, and he typically, they, they typically did it right before big FOMC meetings. Right. So this was a big FOMC meeting. He was talking about what he thinks they're going to say and how they're going to do it. He knew exactly what they were going to say. Exactly. Um, but I was getting angry during the meeting because here I'm looking at and I'm staring at who I think is one of the key adversaries of the last 10, 12 years of lack of price discovery. So I finally... And I'm on the side cracking up because I know... Because he knows. I, and I'm like grinding my teeth and I'm like, you know, I have a lot of quirks and then like in ticks and I'm like and then finally I just blurred out and say okay and I asked them the question I wanted to ask them which was some might say and argue and I might be on this side that the Fed enabled right the excessive spending of the U.S. government which allowed all these fiscal deficits to occur which allowed the suppression of volatility which is caused just basically caused all the issues but I tried to say it in an extremely polite intellectual manner um, and he looks at me and he says, I completely disagree. <laughs> Bangs the table, gets up and leaves. Yes. Meeting over. Wow. Right. And so the funny thing was, I think six months later, there was another meeting with the Bernanke. Yeah. And I, I didn't go. I, I, I sat in one of the back rooms listening and I actually think I was creating an audience of the people that were in the room because I was just yelling. But I was allowed to yell because no one could hear what I was saying. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, it, it, look, I, 
I'm one who blames a lot of what we're seeing right now on the policies of the Federal Reserve. Understanding that the government was, they enabled the government to spend what they did, but if it, you know, this is supposed to be allegedly or academically supposed to be an independent body, right? Independent of what they, we know that's not the case. But at some point in time, there needs to be an adult in the room to say, you cannot do that. And we should not be doing this, but they just enabled where we are right now. And when you say that the Federal Reserve enabled the government to spend, government spends via the treasuries, it issues bonds. The Federal Reserve buys bonds, not from the treasury itself, but from big banks who, who buy that auction from the treasury. So if you connect the dots, you know, debt monetization, uh, uh, that, that could be alleged. When, when, you say, when you say that it, it helped it though, are you saying that if it were quantitative easing, bond yields would rise because the government was just spending hand over fist? Uh, no, actually, what I'm what I'm suggesting is if it wasn't for the Fed quantitative easing, the Fed wouldn't have spent the money that they that they did. They wouldn't the be government able to. Would, the government yeah. the government wouldn't be able to spend the money that they did. Or if they did decide to spend the money that they did, rates would be significantly higher because investors who are, who require a rate of return would need a higher rate than what the Federal Reserve needed, which is effectively zero. Truth. Yeah. And that was the point I was getting to the question yeah. I was getting with Bernanke, which he told me he strongly disagreed. So, that's, that's a great story. But, uh, but, uh, so the fact that bond yields, particularly 10-year, 20-year, 30-year, are so below the current level of inflation is quite striking. Porter, what do you make of that? I mean, I've said that the, the, the whole yield curve has been manipulated. I mean, obviously, everything under five years is definitely manipulated by, by the Fed. Um, you know, and I even think that longer term uh, rates are manipulated by the Fed and by just general uh, central banks. Um, so, you know, and, and I think rates can't really go up because people know that just there's, there's not that without, you know, the fiscal and monetary stimulus, there's just not that much growth to the economy. And the Fed sort of said that with their R star that, you know, that's looking like it's, you know, one and a half going towards zero at this point. And that's our problem with the, the economy. It's just, there's just so much debt and there's just not a lot of growth to it. And, um, you know, at some point this, you know, the, the rubber's going to hit the road in terms of what are we going to do? And so I, I just think it's, we're probably closer to that moment here. And so, I mean, I'm sort of getting more bearish by the second. I should probably, you know. <laughs> I gotta go. Yeah, I gotta go. I gotta pitch my stocks. Yeah, you're like the, the uh, president of El Salvador who trades the country's Bitcoin on his phone. You're like, I got to go on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what Michael Saylor has done to his company is outrageous. I mean, to, to bet the farm, you know, 21 times uh, you know, uh, net debt to EBITDA on a, on a Bitcoin bet with two converts that are, you know, pennies in the dollar right now. The whole thing is bananas. And so, uh, you know, it's just, it's a cl another classic bubble, bubble sign, right? I'm not saying whether buying MicroStrategy or Bitcoin was a good or a bad idea, but what I am asserting is that it was a much better idea than buying the convertible debt of, because you had, you know, very low upside, right? And tons of downside. I, I mean, what were people thinking? I mean, it's just, I don't know. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, 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 you know, the whole junk, uh, junk bond bubble is a whole, whole nother issue, right? So, um, you know, just the, the, they, they've artificially suppressed interest rates 
for, you know, they're buying, buying junk rated debt and artificially suppressing the cost of capital for these companies. Right. And so that's when Vincent talks about price discovery, there is not much price discovery in this market, um, even after, you know, sell off. Well, the, the interesting thing about the current market right now is that despite the calamity that has been happening in equity markets, fixed income markets haven't really, particularly credit markets, haven't really moved all that much, which I think is interesting in the fact that, that to get a true meltdown or said differently, to truly get the Fed off the hawkish pivot that they made, you're going to need credit markets to go south. To, for credit spreads to watch. Stop doing QE to destroy the wealth effect. To do well, not not just to destroy the wealth effect, to destroy the flow of money that is flowing through the system, right? Because when that starts to happen, then all of a sudden the 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 if the credit markets aren't working, then we really have a problem, and the Fed knows it, and then they're going to have to act. Right now, the credit markets are behaving, and I think they're behaving because while. I would have believed that the growth bros had the the equity the the Fed put, and I believe they do. The real Fed put exists in fixed income markets. Those can't widen. Um, now, I personally would like to see a little price discovery and everything, but my view is, I think, in reality, if we're thinking about how we're going to apply our portfolio, um, I'm I'm of the belief that if they do widen, the Fed's going to have to change their tune. You can see why we weren't very good marketers of our, of our fund. I mean, we're just, no, no one, wa- no one wants to be bearish. Nobody, like, in, and you know, uh, it's just terrible. <laughs> except at the bottom, then they want to be bearish. Yeah. No, except at the bottom. They, no one they, likes a bear. Nobody. No, except at the bottom, they'll they'll actually start watching the big short again, and, and then you know you'll see it come out on HBO and or, or Showtime. Uh, that but probably will mark the bottom. Yeah, it'll last five minutes, and then you know. Yeah. So does that, does that environment where credit spreads aren't really moving, but you're having a huge compression in high multiple tech stocks, does that make you think that 2000, 99 is a better analog than 2008 for right now? Oh, yeah. I personally think it is. Yeah. yeah. I do. Um, it feels that way. Yeah. It definitely feels that way. And so, you know, getting back to this question you asked, I think, earlier before, when I was talking about my biggest, like, what seems so warped is like bank balance sheets, which is sovereign debt. Living in 99 and 2000, it feels more like that, that I think the equity and the derivatives of the tech bubble that, that we have created is going to unwind, which didn't bring down the entire system. So if we think about what we expect next, assuming the Fed remains hawkish, and we do believe that will happen, the next shoe to drop is VC private capital, right? Where, where those marks are still significantly up. And I don't know how they can remain elevated when the one bastion of price discovery they have or, or they're, they're out, so to speak, which is public markets, has dropped 50, 40, 50, 60 percent. There's no way these private companies are worth what they're worth if the public mark is significantly lower. You know, it goes back to this is bringing up old anger. I don't know why I do this to myself, but, you know, the. the you know, we, we eclipsed the IPO market of 2000 last year, right? The, 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 I think the regular IPOs eclipsed it, and then you had tack on the SPAC, so it was right there. You know, it, it always goes back to, you know, follow the money. And, you know, the investment bankers are always looking for a deal. And, you know, in, in 2006, it was the CDO machine, 
You know, the, like the, that they, they fed they fed it like crazy and they were making tons of money. And, you know, this year it was the it was the equity capital markets and debt capital markets. These guys made a ton of money. And, you know, when they do these IPOs, they don't just IPO the company. They game it. Right. They only list like five percent of the company and then they, they yeah. shoot these things to create they, they need a first day bounce. Yeah. And so the, the whole thing's a game. And so, you know, I think, it, you know, as you get older and see how, you know, understand how the game works, you know, we are we were able to last year really pick apart when the unlocks were starting to come. And, you know, one of our favorite was Robin Hood last year. That was that was fun where we were like, this thing is going to fall. And, you know, if we we didn't sort of anticipate this big of a retail crash and um, 70 to 13 in three months. Yeah, well, they, 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 that was part of the unlock. This stock was just way too overvalued. And for a company that, you know, basically was bailed out twice um, during COVID, you know, the in- investor had to inject money in because they, they basically would have failed, Bear Stern style. Right. And so, you know, people have very short memories. Yeah. It's amazing. But and are there other companies that aren't a tech stock? They're not a platform stock, but they have multiples or they had multiples like one. I'm thinking of, you know, I have some oat milk this morning, yeah. like Oatly, that one, or Allbirds. I don't know if maybe you're, I love Allbirds. But it's it's trading, you know, it's a stock that's trading as if it's yeah, like a tech stock or a Yeti or there's a lot, I mean, right. a lot of stuff or Beyond there. Meat or yeah, or right. there's a Peloton. I guess you can. It's not really a tech stock. It was an equipment manufacturer with, with an attached potential annuity stream. Yeah, and take it even a little step further that the the annuity low growth thinking McDonald's Procter and Gamble just the the low rate of interest allowed people to elevate the multiples of these names and treat them more like long duration bonds. Uh, that's the scary, to a certain extent, some of these companies are trading at similar multiples to Google, which is insane to me. But, you know, and then, then you throw in the whole ESG theme, which is a whole other stupid thing. Why, why they value the E and ESG like a thousand times more than governance. It's the whole, whole thing is bananas. So, you know, if you were anything with an EV store, you had some crazy multiple last year. And so, um, you know, thankfully we got that one. I were sure a couple, you know, stupid ESG EV stories and we're long the dirty. We were long, long dirty ESG. And I can't say we got all of it. Right oh, now. no, we didn't. No, no, no. no. Oh, oh, give me. Oh, no. Because we got run grid by Tesla. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We got Musk. <laughs> So. We've all been there. Uh, what, <laughs> what, so short it though, probably get crushed really? in earnings tonight. Yeah. What, um, what do you think is more, you know the companies that are really failing now, falling over are unprofitable technology, unprofitable high growth, high multiple, high prices sales. What do you think is a bigger factor? What do you think is the worst factor to have? Being ridiculously overpriced in terms of prices sales, but profitable. I might you know propose a snowflake or something that. On a price to sales multiple isn't you know at a hundred, but it's just not that profitable in business. I I think it's the non-profitable entities because right now or what we had up until two a few months ago was a zero cost of equity capital for these companies. They had the ability to lose money, and they they had a mandate to lose money, uh, and investors gave them the benefit of the doubt, hoping that their TAMs would be achieved by two thousand thirty-five. Uh, what we've seen is that that rug has been pulled out underneath them. And so all of a sudden, I hate to say it, but we've mentioned it a few times, Peloton has been the modern day poster child. 
that once the rug is pulled out and you actually have to start making money because you have a massive cash burn and investors aren't going to give you money again, then all of a sudden you have to alter your entire operations. You sadly have to fire personnel and employees and there goes your growth. The crazy thing is a long time ago, like these, these one hit wonders during the one hit actually made a lot of money. Peloton never made a dime. No, it's just, it's just crazy. You know, the, the, the subprime originators at one point printed a lot of cash. You know, conversely, a name like Snowflake or, or think of an Amazon or Microsoft reported last night. Um, they, I'm not saying Microsoft is super high multiple, but these companies who are extremely profitable with high margins, they'll be okay. Yeah. Um, the stocks might go down a lot, but they'll be fine. Assuming their business, their underlying business models are fine. I, I would not want to be in the camp right now of a non-profitable tech company or a non-profitable company. Forget about tech. A non-profitable company that was reliant on three to four or five equity raises to achieve their TAM uh, potential. Yeah. Again, the the, the SPACs really the, the bankers got a hold of the SPAC market and it just they went wild on. When you were buying a if you were buying a SPAC at ten bucks, you were paying overpaying on like a PE basis a takeout. You were paying full valuation for these companies. And it just, it made no sense. Absolutely. We, we, we actually went down the road of maybe trying to do a SPAC and we looked at each other and said, this is all BS. This, this is not this us. This is all this BS. I when I read that because I knew it was like, it's not your style. Oh, no. It, so we were like. You had to see us when we were going through it and, and just speaking to bankers. And you're just sitting there and you're like, I, I can't live with myself doing this. <laughs> This is just not who we are. I, I, yeah. I, you can't get us in front of people marketing, and I can't bullshit to people. Exactly, it, it just wouldn't work. So. I think you had that with a, uh, Bill Ackman had a SPAC where I, actually he wanted to buy very uh, good companies. Forget one of them, but the other one was Bloomberg. Correct. But that you know, with the goal, a successful SPAC is for for a promoter for for someone who has a SPAC is one that does a deal quickly, and the quality doesn't that, that matter. Like his standards were way too high, so I don't think they've made a deal yet. Bill Ackman's a funny guy. I mean, you know, I, a lot of stuff I shake my head and then a lot of stuff, you know, he, he does a really good job as a, as a value investor, you know, uh, uh, but then he did this, his famous uh, fund of one f- to uh, targets, target stores. Yeah. It's bananas. Herbalife as well. But yeah. I mean, all in all, I mean, he's, he's really shown his stripes through the years. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. some, yeah. Uh, so, after 2008, the CDO machine, the securitization, that whole environment was a tiny fraction of what it was. It really became something like a hinterland of finance. Do you think now that we've had a huge crash in SPACs where SPACs that were trading at $10 and then they went up to 25 are now trading at two? Do you think that that environment of there just won't be as, you know, will be far fewer deals uh, as there were in 2020, 2021? Or do you think that, uh, you know, hope springs eternal? You know, funny, we, we invested with a friend of ours that we worked with a long time ago that, that uh, who just specializes in SPACs. And that's our thought process is that, you know, he'll be able to wade through this, you know, mess of uh, the SPAC market and f- find a couple of gems. And so that, that was our thought process. And, well, you know, still early in that in that game. We just invested in the end of the year. So, yeah, but that gets back to the, the whole idea of Peloton going into two. They're, they're out of, let's say, the hundred SPACs that, were out there, 95 are probably pieces of crap, but there were probably five gems. And we don't have the time, but we would lo- what we'd love to do is outsource some of the ideas that we have to specialists. 
um, who, who do have the time, who make it their focus. Um, and we'll be finding, hopefully finding those gems for us. And then we could sort of not only just invest with him, but also tack on to them within our Seawolf portfolio as well. And he can, and he can short these names too that are all BS. So it, it's, it, I think it's a fertile ground uh, for stock picking. It's just, just messy, you know. Um, you know, a lot of weird holders to names. It's just, it's just not, not, our, not what we're good at. Yeah. So right. We've talked a lot about the short side. Now let's talk about what, what you are long. We indicated, uh, you mentioned shipping. Yep. That obviously has been a phenomenally you know, well-performing trade over the past year. Let's talk about two others, cannabis and nuclear. Two things that you know, one wouldn't associate, they don't have a lot in common with each other. Other than that, they are sort of strange. Um, let's, let's tell us about cannabis. Porter, why did you get into cannabis? I mean, you, you look, look how we invest, right? We, we, we sort of, we're, we're, um, we're contrarian. I mean, we've sort of become more contrarian uh, as we've gotten older. Uh, but, you know, the, 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 big, the big short was a contrarian trade. Um, and, you know, a lot of stuff where we like to buy really mispriced assets and one-off. And, you know, we don't, we've never owned anything that looks like an index. Uh, never really shorted anything that looks like an index. I mean, um, and, you know, we, we one-off all the time. Yeah, the the cannabis is is interesting. You know, we we uh, we got into it a couple of years ago through Danny. Uh, Danny really, you know, after he, he retired from the hedge fund business, got into it with a with a friend of his, uh, and they were in private equity, and so we invested in that private equity, and we, we liked the thesis, um, and just sort of watched watched sort of from the uh, the cheap seats, and then we we started watching these stocks get demolished last year, and you know the funny thing about you know, growth bros rail on value investors and say we only like to buy, you know, stupid companies with, you know, cheap valuations and stuff like that. You know, we just like, you know, when I'd prefer to buy a growth, we've always said we'd prefer to buy a growth stock uh, at the right valuation. And so you look at, at, there's not many really growth industries besides software in this country. And you know, there are a couple, but, you know, cannabis is one of them. And it's, it's going to happen so piecemeal that you're going to have a nice, growth roadmap. And, you know, one of the reasons that uh, you can't really invest in cannabis stocks is obviously illegal at this point. And they're completely shut out of the banking system. You know, they, they can't list in the U.S. And so you got, I mean, there's, the list is long of why you can't own these stocks. And our thought process is that if the safe uh, banking bill passes, it'll be a just massive catalyst to unlock a lot of the value and to allow people to see what is a great little uh, growth industry. Um, and, you know, the cost of capital is going to come down. The tax rates will come down. The ability to, you know, be in indices will go up. It's just, it's sort of like three or four simple catalysts that, that allow massive re-rates. And so, I mean, also a lot of stuff we do, you know, Vin and I are the smartest guys out there. We do just, we, we use our common sense. You know, and, and, you know, people come up with fancy DCF models. We, we don't do that. Um, you know, we, we, we make reasonable assumptions and put in, you know, great risk reward trades. And that's what we do all day long. And so, you know, we think this is a, at this point, a washed out good risk reward trade that, you know, even if they don't uh, get the safe bill passed, you know, I, I think that the growth will kind of carry us. And they're very, they're sort of garpy names at this point, growth at reasonable price. And so that's sort of that's sort of the thought process there. 
the only thing I'll add, which which adds to the element of cannabis and, and probably uranium in a lot of our trades as well, investments as well, is this concept of duration. So so in this second generation of, of Seawolf, uh, right now it's just our money. So our duration is infinite. And, and to us, duration is one of the most vital aspects, factors that is required for people like us to make outsized returns. We don't know when federal legislation is going to pass for cannabis. It could be this year, it could be next year, we're hoping it's this year, but we don't know. And so when people ask me, what's the catalyst and when is it gonna work? The answer is, I, I sadly do not know. But what I do know is that I think it's highly probable that it will pass because it seems like both sides of the aisle seem to want to pass it. And when it does, um, this could be one of those investments that give three to five X type returns on your investment. And that's the stuff we like to be involved in. Uh, I know maybe that's not sexy anymore. You know, looking 10 baggers, 100 baggers. Those are probably long gone right now, but fair. But like... If we were running institutional capital, um, their tolerance for pain of an investment, and it's not big for us yet, but let's, at some point it probably will be, their tolerance of pain for something that might not work two, two or three months is extremely low. And so one of the things I think about is, as you ask the question is, I would never want to give up our duration um, because we think that's the real alpha creation, one of the big alpha creators for us. Uh, and see we, we still get the spilks on on uh, on duration because you know in 2016 we had oh, yeah. you know probably one of the only drawdowns of our career and it was a four month drawdown of like 15 percent and basically half the fund redeemed and that's you know like nothing that's like what the S and P does does draw you know when you when you're when you're bearish and you're short and you lose money when the market goes down because your longs go down more than your shorts. Oh yeah, uh, you know people were just like you know oh well, what are we gonna and so they you know that that was that was uh, a uh, dark moment for Vinny and I. Yes. So uh, yeah, I think I actually was thinking about it today. I, it's it's weird how uh, investors react to when people had a view at, at a time. You know, there's a saying that you never get fired for being bullish when everyone else is bullish, even if it goes down, but you do get fired for being bearish when everyone else is bullish and it goes up. I was thinking that in March 2020, there were some hyper bulls and hyper bears. The hyper bulls obviously were right, but it seems like people still have way more respect for the hyper bears, even though they're wrong, than the hyper bulls. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, the hyper bulls are a lot wealthier than oh the hyper God. bears, I, mean, I will tell you that. We're, you know, we're, not, we're not flying around in private jets, nor even if we made money, we would not be doing that. No. But the, the, yeah, uh, I mean, Vincent doesn't even have a Peloton. I called him. He was on the bike. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, also, you know, when, when you want a shorter stock, you, the last like thing you want to do is provide... a 80s workout bike? Is yeah, it is. Yeah, it's horrible. It's but um, the last thing you want to do is provide them additional revenue streams. Um, not only that, I always felt like exercise bikes of any kind is a fad. So why in the world am I going to lock up to an annuity stream? But that's, I tend to be more on the frugal, cheap side, sadly. Mm -hmm. so. When uh, we, we 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 try to live our value investor ways, you know, like I, there's funny you you find you know a value investor who you know flies around in private jets, like, you're not really a value investor. You can't do that. Do you even drink Coca-Cola? Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I do, I do. I, I like the Coke Zero, but the, uh, <laughs> our friend, uh, our friend Jordan is a pretty good value investor, and he, he uh, drives around in his, uh, his Pontiac. Yeah, his Pontiac, green Pontiac, 1975, I think it is. 
what specifically, uh, what sector of the marijuana business are you most bullish on? Because when I think of just like, let's say growing the plant, obviously like being an avocado farmer is not the best business model in the world. Like being a, you know, running a dairy farm isn't the best business model. It's not Apple. It's not like you have these sort of network effects and consumer loyalty. Uh, so do you view the best businesses there as the consumer brands that are sort of like making the flour or, or selling the parts to the growers, uh, selling the land to the growers? What are you sort of most constructive of in, in space? I mean, I, I think you're still just in the very, very, very early innings of, of what's going to happen. Uh, and, you know, yes, you, you want to do, you want to sell the picks and shovels, but you know, the, there's, there's money to be made all, all over the, the food chain, you know, whether it's, um, you know, one of our, uh, one of the companies we've been buying is uh, Scott's miracle Grow, And, you know, we, we, we always, we always have a tendency to like quirky and weird management teams. And, uh, you know, they, they, they Scott's miracle Grow has pivoted to the hydroponics business as well as a, as a, as a tack on, um, you know, so, you know, we have that and then we have companies that touch the plant as well. Mm. Um, so I, I think, yeah. But one of the names that we that we have uh, is rolling up uh, various retail establishments as well as having their own brand, and they happen to be on more of the premium side, right? So the vertically integrated is appealing to us. But, but again, it is extremely early. The one thing we do want, because we don't know the extent of the timing of when the, 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 big, the big bang catalyst is going to happen, is we want someone with, with superior balance sheets because you want to make sure they make it through. And the other thing we did is we, we uh, a friend of ours, because we don't have the patience nor um, time to do this, but, the, you know, he invested uh, in the fixed income side and the de debt instruments and, and uh, of these companies. And uh, it's a fantastic business. I mean, huge yields, um, you know, again, another example of a big, pretty big moat to your business or niche. And, uh, you know, our advice to him is just to, keep milking it as long as it lasts. You know, the arb will close eventually, but it's a pretty big arb at this point. Yeah. Uh, it's my understanding that at least last year, one of your highest conviction bets was in the nuclear sector, yeah. investing in nuclear energy. Why are you constructive on that space and how are you seeing it evolve? We, we, we were sort of early, we are like everything, we were early uh, on this. Is that it, Our basic thesis was that people were going nuts on EV and electric vehicle. Yep. And how were you going to power the grid? A clean grid. Like our, our friend Rohan came into town and he goes, you, you wouldn't believe how many, uh, you know, two wheelers, they're called motorbikes, they call them two wheelers over there, are all electric in India. And I go, well, yeah, the dirty little secret is it's all powered by coal plants. And so, uh, you know, our thought process was that the only way you're going to, you know, you know, we can be short some, you know, our Tesla. And on the other hand, um, you know, the, the, the nuclear power was going to, you know, power the grid that uh, supplied all these EVs. I have two conflicting thoughts in my head when it came to nuclear, right? right. It's kind of funny. Um, I, I strive, and I think Porter strives, we strive very hard not to be hypocrites, right? Uh, I'll get to what I'm trying to get at with that. Uh, in addition to that, you try not to develop a religion about anything, particularly in investing, you can't do so. However, if you truly believe in the academic merits of ESG, which is clean energy, and you start doing a little bit of math, and I can't say we've done all the math, you can't get there without nuclear being a viable option. 
right? It's just impossible. Look, sadly, Germany learned that you can't necessarily rely on wind alone. If you have a bad wind season, you're going to have some serious energy issues if you're solely, not solely, but predominantly relying on wind. Nuclear is one of the great baseline powers that emits and produces clean energy. And that was part of the religion that I've slowly, sadly, or, or I've developed that this is one of the alternatives. And I, I'm a big believer in energy that there's not one category killer is that we need all of this to work together and probably have redundancies in order to make this all work. So if that's the case, then you start to really truly believe in nuclear as an option and should be an option. What gave us the I would say the evidence and more of a fundamental basis as to why to do it is that regardless of whether what Europe thinks about nuclear, and that's changing, regardless of what the United States thinks about nuclear, and that's changing, both to the positive, Europe will say, China's adopting this. And and, and it was that catalyst and, and the fact that they were building, I think, to the tune of 30 to 50 nuclear plants over the next 10 years, that told us that that whether people like it or not, nuclear is going to be a major player over the next 10 years when it comes to energy and particularly clean energy. And, and that was, and this is a true investment where, quite frankly, it's very volatile, but we have not sold anything associated. If anything, we add on dips uh, because it's hard to believe that this is not going to be. And the risks are sadly obvious. I'd rather not even get into it. Anyone could could. Um, produce the, the risk that we have of this investment. Uh, but we think the rewards, if we're right, are, are, are massive. It goes back to you know the, how we like to invest and how we think about investing. You know, we do a lot of thematic investing. We come up with a thesis and go test it out. And you know, the, the nice thing about two of us, you know, we can call bullshit on each other. If, you know, like, uh, part of this is not really working. You know. on, on the nuclear ideas, we went down and, you know, Where's all this power coming from? And then so that we got actually got into coal, sort of the back doorway <laughs> of, you know, tr- trying to look at, at, you know, how the grid's powered. We look at all these coal stocks and they've been crushed by ESG. And we're like, wow, these stocks are really stinking cheap. And so, you know, we, we own coal stocks and they are stinking cheap. And I, maybe they'll just stay this way for a long time. But, you know, the, the thing is, is with high coal prices like this, um, these companies have been able to prepare their balance sheets. And again, you know, like uh, Peabody Coal is basically locked out of the financing market, right? The, the ESG people will never, the banks will never give them capital. And so when you're forced into a hole like that, you know, you, you, you have to, there's a lot of uh, f- financial discipline on the companies and so that and paying down debt and we sort of so that's that's how we got into it um, so nuclear is kind of a gateway drug gateway drug you know, same thing with the energy thesis the energy thesis we got into during covid because we were looking at propane prices we're like oh people are going to use propane and so that we got into uh Intero resources one of the bigger uh propane players in the country and then we fumbled our way into uh into into you know, kept on buying, you know, ungodly amounts of energy stocks. Yeah, and, and that was a function of, when I think about it, is when we started studying ESG, uh, our typical contrarian heads went to, well, what is, what, they're, they're starving this, this sector, and it's a combination of ESG and also the fracking boom and bust uh, of, 
of the 2012 to 2015 era. And we realized like, wow, we need this fuel. We need oil. We need gas. We need coal. And they're not and they're not spending any capex on the on the market whatsoever. So when you when you think about it that way and you looked at where the stocks were, and also in addition to that, from the capital markets perspective, uh, you couldn't find a major institutional holder of any of these large um, oil and gas names. We, remember we did the exercise yeah. where we were going through the holders list of of all of the um, of the major players, you know, you, you name the major uh, investors that, that are out there and say, okay, spot the first energy name. And you had to go to... Like we did, we did Wellington's... Uh, yes. We did Wellington, we did T. Rowe, we did Newberger, we did... So we looked at where's, what's their number, their highest energy holding of their list. ExxonMobil, whatever. ExxonMobil, and ExxonMobil was like number 75, right? Meaning it was the 75th largest holding. So there were 75 other names before ExxonMobil owned by, say, a Wellington or a Newberger. Nobody owned this stuff. Zero. So if you ever had an environment where somehow, some way, energy prices went up and somehow, some way, these companies gained discipline to make sure that they didn't continue to drill, you had this massive opportunity set in these names. And that was the, the-, the theme and the thesis uh, associated with, the- with, the- with our energy names. And it's not just Wellington, right? It's... Yes, everybody. 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 Again, go back to how we think about things, and and we. I really love the the thought process of the capital cycle, right? Where is all the money going? All money is going to tech, not only in the investors, but you know, capex is tech. Everything is everything's tech, and where aren't they investing? And obviously, it's energy. And so when you know when all the money floods in, returns go down. When the money floods out, returns go up, and so. We kind of like that dynamic where returns are going up, no one owns it, and um, you know a fixed uh, a fixed expense base with a variable revenue base that you know that you get ma- you get max leverage. You know, like owning a gold miner, right? Expenses stay the same, uh, you know, fixed price, and then you know gold price goes goes to two thousand, and you make a lot of money. And so uh, we like a lot of names like that where. Especially, you know, if you have a good, a good handle on the underlying commodity or underlying anything, you got a got a good uh, good thesis there. You say that's a persistent theme is seeking out things that are underappreciated, like in cannabis, where if you're running an institutional fund, you might not be allowed to buy these marijuana stocks. You might have a mandate you can't buy uh, oil stocks and the like. You you do that. Yep. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, if they, let's shift in. I like staying on the long shots. Okay. Yeah, yeah. In the next part. Um, Makes make people feel that we're very optimistic and yeah, positive. Yeah, we, we are positive. So, like, think about think about the shipping sector, and and I, I say this a lot, and I apologize, but it, it it makes me laugh and it baffles me. You sit and you watch financial media, and perhaps not as much now, but a few months ago, all they talked about, and you listen to any podcast, they talked about supply bottlenecks and and high costs associated with the supply bottlenecks caused by COVID and the like and the high shipping costs. And you're watching it and they're saying, what are the implications to Amazon, to Nike, to Walmart, to Target? And we just sit there and laugh and say, okay, CNBC, I apologize for, um, for pointing them out. You're talking about these names. Have you ever asked the question, who's benefiting from this? And are there any stocks whatsoever that you would want to own? Never benefit, and it never happened. Never happened. So you would never see 
or rarely see Maersk come up on the board of saying, hey, maybe you want to own this. Or, or we own this uh, container leasing company called Triton or, or, yeah. or Danny Ose. Yeah. Yeah, all of these. You, I, I don't think I've ever, I don't watch CNBC a yeah. lot. I don't, but I don't think I've ever seen these names come up in financial media as the beneficiaries of things that you want to do. Um, it was only just the implications to FANG stocks and the, and the top 20 largest names. Uh, no one likes a bearish thesis, too. That, too. They do not like bearish thesis. Uh, oh, you know, who, who's going who's gonna to make, make money in this mess? You know, they don't like, they don't like thesis like that. Yeah, and, oh, because oh, even though your view on the stock is bullish, it, it blooms in a toxic environment. Yes. Right. People are rightfully nervous that eventually container ship right, lease rates are going to come down. They, they have to. I mean, people have been calling this for, you know, a year plus now, and they, they haven't come down. And so eventually they'll come down and, you know, these stocks, which are, you know, less than one times earnings will be, you know, three times earnings or something like that. But very expensive, very expensive, you know, and uh, so it'll be interesting how we do or if we keep them or pitch them. I, I don't we're going to we're again fumbling our way through the dark of, of uh, trying to figure out, you know, how, how long rates stay up and how much cash we get back in, in the meantime. So I, I'm a big firm believer in the cure for higher prices is higher prices. Yeah. Right. So eventually, whether and we can even make this statement in the energy sector as well, eventually greed's going to lead towards additional capex um, in, in both the shipping and energy. Anyway, when your wife wants something from Amazon and she goes on her phone and she hits buy now, like there's the, you know, that, that, that's the. Well, <laughs> that's what the, I, I could go down. Well, she wants it and she wants it now. No, the, yeah. the, the rabbit hole he's going under is if you think about the last 10, 12 years. Um, the incremental CapEx investment went into, let's call it, tech-related investments, right? So the, the 20th software company or the 15th online auto uh, dealer or, or something tech-related that would have the ability to get a 30 or 40 times revenue multiple. So, multiple. so that's where all the money went. And we also spent a lot of money in the payments, so just getting back to financial services, yeah. a, a lot into the payment side of the business. So the ability for my wife or any or someone's husband to press click on Amazon and get that thing the next day, right? Very little money, very little investment went into making sure that those ships were more efficient going from, from say, Vietnam and China to California, eventually to our homes. So we've had 20 some odd years of minimal CapEx associated with that with that that part of the plumbing to get from click to the packaged goods to our house. I think that's the reason why we're seeing the benefit in our investments. Right now. All these ports are, are owned by government entities. And we know how you know, awful the government's run. All, they're just they're not they're they're not forward thinking CapEx people. And so the Port of Los Angeles looks the same way it did. And, you know. 2001 and, and, or, you know, 10 years ago. And there's just, you know, the only thing we, we give Amazon a lot of credit, you know, on the stock, but you know, the, they were the only person over the last 10 years really investing in, in uh, infrastructure assets. Vin and I had this uh, <laughs> debate going back. We, we owned the stock air cap a long time ago and, uh, and news press release came out and it says Amazon's buying aircraft. And then he goes, that's a terrible idea. I go, what do you mean terrible idea? I think it's a great idea. And they were buying their own aircraft. And, you know, they, of course, the equity markets allowed them to lose money uh, doing that. Um, but, you know, they were the, 
optimally set up for COVID. Yeah. They were perfect. I mean, I got to give them a lot of credit. I do. I do. And do you see supply coming back? Are people building a lot more ships? Because not yet. So they're, shipping rates are high. Are no, in, in, in certain the sectors, they the, are. The container ships, they're, they're, they deliver in like 24. Right. They, they start coming in. But like, you know, they're certainly not building any more uh, product tanker, like, uh, you know, gasoline tankers. I mean, why not? Gasoline's dead in 10 years, right? Mm. So they're not building any more um, uh, product tankers. They're not building any more, they call it dry bulk, because they carry steel and coal. And so you can forget about that. Um you know, they're building LNG ships. Um, I'm forgetting some. Going back to your, your, your thesis that the, the big short can be found within the, the long-term debt cycle. You, in that, in that report. Well, let's, make it, let's make it clear. We, we, I loved the, uh, ba- the BCA, the bank credit analyst, wrote this uh, report in like 2001 which is the the uh, the debt super the ending of the debt yes, super yes, cycle? Yes. yes. And so I loved it when I when I read it. You know, twenty plus years ago, it feels like we're closer to the end of this debt super cycle. Like the, just that we're pushing the outer bounds of what the Fed can do, and the you know Fed's now in a box with the seven percent inflation. It's going to come down, but I mean, can you imagine people are like what's the tail risk? What's the tail risk? Can you imagine if if Inflation seven percent a year from now. I mean, was the S and P going to be down? A lot, a lot, a lot. Yeah. I mean, I'm not calling for that, but that that that's the risk. I, I just think that, you know, um, it you got to be careful here. I, I really do. I, and 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 the sad thing is, is that retail got buried. I mean, at, you know, everybody piled into crypto. Except for the you know Novogratz and the Winklevi and you know those guys got the low, everyone else got it you know higher, everybody. Same thing with you know all, retail got all these stocks higher. Um, you know the ones that have crashed, the Ark and stuff like that. You know if you did Apple and Google, you're fine. But uh, you know that's the sad part about this. They 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 did it again. Yeah. Well, what I ask is in that report where you talk about the debt supercycle, you note that. Your, your views on the dollar and fiscal deficits orient you to to own gold, silver, precious metal, mining stocks. And I believe you also said crypto, although you noted that you were more constructive on Ethereum than Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. But now it sounds like you are a little bit more skeptical about crypto, at least for the short term view. So we pitched our crypto last spring. So it was okay. like, you know, it, it, we, we got the spilks and just dumped it. Uh, but it was great trade. We, we just started doing more work. Like, and, and you know, some reporter, like we have these ideas and themes. We sometimes put them in the portfolio. Sometimes we don't, but we try to back them up and support it, the fundamental work behind. So crypto is one of the things that we, we owned a little bit of Ethereum, a little bit of Bitcoin at one point. But the more and more work we did, the more and more concerned I started to get and, and Porter started to get. And, and. In particular, no, you, you're the one who, who goes dark on the leverage. Yeah, I do. Like I, I just and, sort of let it glaze over my and eyes. And in particular, I started hearing the concepts of DeFi and the like. And I realized that all they were doing, it seems like they were doing to me, is recreating a shadow banking system based upon what is called smart contract, which is really secured lending. And the only thing that they were providing financing for was crypto. There was no real live use case, or at least at this point in time, there really hasn't been. And I think what I felt 
like I was seeing was significant leverage on leverage without anybody really taking money out of the system. They were just putting it into stable coins and leveraging it further and leveraging it further. And, and you know, then we could get into the whole is there. And Bloomberg just wrote a piece on this, which I think is causing quite controversy. This, that there's no money supporting this thing. Real, real fiat, well, let's call it fiat money. Tether. Uh, right, tether. Uh, because no one's taking money out yet in, in a massive way. And that really scared me. And, and I said, I don't want to be there, even though I think conceptually Bitcoin is a form of digitized gold or conceptually Ethereum is trying to provide a general ledger system for all things digital and fractionalizing different types of assets. It's the underlying participants uh, and the leverage that they're deploying in those, in those uh, types of instruments that really scared me and I stayed away. Yeah. And you're, you, do you have a long-term view it's, it's, uh, that's more constructive or, or you know, is there, are there levels that you can get in? How do you think about valuing it? You can't really value LPE. I, I don't because, you know, your eyes are glazing over at, at like, what, what level do you pick on? Like, how, how do you value Bitcoin? I mean, you could say the same thing about gold, but gold's been around for, you know, we've been using this currency for 5,000 years. And so, and, you know, it wasn't that long ago, our whole monetary system was based on gold. And so it has a, a really strong uh, historical basis for that. And, you know, when, when times go bad, you know, people happy to own gold. And, uh, is it going to work ever again? I, I don't know, but we own it. <laughs> yeah. But, but then you get into a deeper, deeper discussions of decentralization versus centralization, yep. right? And... I would love conceptually to believe in centralization, but I just do not believe the sovereign governments are going to allow some form of alternative currency other than their own, places like El Salvador and Venezuela excluded, um, to run amok, so to speak, of having our ability to buy things in Bitcoin here. You just start to lose your power. And so in order for, I've always felt, and I felt this from the beginning, in order for Bitcoin to really truly work, we need to have a seven standard deviation event in the world where we just simply don't believe whatsoever in the nation state, right? Everywhere is Turkey. Everywhere is Venezuela. Everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And, and let's be honest, our sovereign governments are doing their damnedest time to make me feel like the seven day standard deviation event is possible, right? But I still don't necessarily know that it's probable. And I think the, I think eventually we have to get man's ability to control money um, to leave the system. And I do believe they'll go revert back to some form of a gold standard, whether it's the United States or whether it's a consortium of, say, Russia and China who want more of the world stage with their currencies. Uh, so we gravitate significantly more towards gold because we have history on our side. Mm. You know, when, when, when the shit hits the fan, you know, I, you know, I don't think Bitcoin's going to be truly decentralized. You know, if you, if you own gold, you can have it in your backyard. It might be our age, but physical possession of, of, of something tangible is far more important than digitized possession, right? Um, I don't trust that your Bitcoin is going to be there uh, at the end of the day. Um, so. If the government wants to take it like they did, you know, in, in the 30s with gold, like it's gone. Given that it sounds like you're pretty bearish on crypto, at least in the short term, are you taking short positions on some of the publicly traded equities that are related to that? Yes, we are short MicroStrategy. Mm -hmm. And we look, we've been short 
Robinhood. We're not anymore. Uh, but we're short MicroStrategy. We have been for a while. I mean, it's just, it, was, it was stupid. Yeah. Uh, you know, he bet the farm, and maybe, the, maybe he's, the farm's wrong, right? You know, and, and, uh, a lot of that was structure as well yeah. as how, what he did. And right. even the very, if you could be extremely long on Bitcoin, the spread between MicroStrategy stock and the, the stock has compressed a lot. Correct. Yeah, yeah. One, th- one final long we haven't talked about is housing. We've had a huge housing boom over the past two years. Uh, that has accelerated over the past two years, and the pri- you know uh, housing is a very key part of inflation. Very interesting that you are quite constructive on on the housing market in uh, America, at least. I'd say what what a difference fifteen years makes. <laughs> I mean, I I think that's you know I, I think you're you're probably taking that from our. 2021 letter, you know, the, the year ago, 2020, yeah. 2020, sorry. Yeah. Uh, and you know, we were constructive on housing. Um, you know, our, our view, we always sort of like, uh, go back and forth, but we, we do own a lot of, um, multifamily, uh, properties and, um, you know, I, I just think prices have gone too high. The prices are too expensive and, and, you know, the feds got this easy policy and it's, you know, if the Fed's hiking rates and equity markets are going to go down, I don't know that house prices are necessarily going to go up. Um, you know, I'm not bearish on them per se, but I'm not bearish on them because the supply of housing is just so low. I mean, you go, you go to some of these towns and you just can't buy houses. You know, we're, we're in big structural deficits of housing. And so uh, right now I'm neither you know bullish or bearish. I don't think. And the quality of mortgages is uncomparable to 2007, right? Yes, 100. percent And I, I always think a, a good question to ask uh, investors who pool capital is, "What's your incremental investment right now?" Yeah. Right? And right now it's not housing, right? And so why is that the case? Poor, I think Porter nailed it. We do own one name actually. Which one? We own Saint Joe. Yes, oh, yes, 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 we, yeah, yes, yeah, we yeah. do own St. Joe, and, and that is a long-term investment. What, but We were shorted a long time ago uh, in, in the housing crisis um, back at, at Front Point. And, yes. Um, but it, it's, it's different. Like, I, we were talking about this about Florida. Like, Florida's time has come. Like Before, it used to be very boom-bust. And you know, look at it now. It's, it's booming. And that's yeah. where I was going to go is that yeah. our... our are I think you need to to go deeper into our housing bullish thesis, which is where are you bullish on housing, yep. and it has to do with migration trends towards lower tax jurisdictions, which is in the south, right? So from there, things like Joe, what spits out things like Joe, uh, we used to be long a bunch of other names. However, we are we are reasonably long LP interest in multifamily real estate in the Southeast. We, I, I laugh when I think about Joe because we, we had a uh, failed investment uh, thesis. We come with these thesis. We had a bad one in, uh, you know, as, as bearish as we were on housing in, uh, in 2007, uh, we were long this stock called Murillo Maddox. And I don't know how we can. It, now, can I explain my thesis? Because okay. it's on me. Yeah, no, okay. Like if, yeah. if I screwed up on this one, I should. We, be able we have to the tell whole the like you know ecosystem. No, no, no. And, it, it, it's it's significantly more trivial <laughs> and and stupid. And when you hear it, you people might turn and listen to this podcast and go, "I'm never going to listen to Vincent again." So remember the show Entourage. I told you it's stupid. <laughs> so at the time, you had these really cool Queens guys. 
I was, I'm from Queens, but I'm not that cool. <laughs> going to LA, who became quite famous. Well, they were only one of them was cool anyway. So but they, yeah. they all, yeah, dra- yeah. they all rode yeah. on the coattails. Drama, drama could have been cool, but he wasn't. Nevertheless, Turtle. My best friend from home, Ron, is exactly like Turtle. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, um, when I would go visit LA, you would see that the city of LA had such potential. Right to be like Manhattan, where people would not live uh, near the ocean and they would live within the city. And this was a bias of mine coming from New York. That, that event and and there was initiatives. Queen's and, Queen's thesis comes to L.A. Yes, and there was an initiative via the Staples Center to build up L.A., the city of L.A., and create a city within there. So we made an investment in a commercial real estate developer, Murillo Maddox. Um, sadly, at the wrong time, and sadly, they did not do a very good job at all. So, so the <laughs> so, so the genesis of the investment was entourage from Queens goes to LA and goes full. It didn't work out. So I love that you bring. Oh, I know all I, the times. I love you. Yeah, we, we we we've we've gotten so many stocks wrong. We've gotten squeezed in so many stocks. You know, it's you, it, the great thing about investing, and if you speak to I, uh, I think people like us, we we. Spend so much more time, or you remember your losers so much more than your winners, right? Like I, I, I could tell you. Can you? Why don't you tell the first Marvel story? I was going to go. I could, I was just about to say. I could tell you where I was. So we were short this piece of shit student lender called First Marvel, right? Which used to originate private student loans and sell them to the capital markets and make these crazy uh, gains, like. You know, for every dollar of student loan they were selling, they would make 10 to $12. And we knew it was unsustainable. So we were short. And not only that, they had this CEO that I just did not get along with. He just did not fit my personality description. So we were short it. We were short a lot of stuff. We were short a lot of it. And of course, it was, as we usually are, we tend to be a little bit too early, right? Or, or way too early, to be quite frank. And this time, we were just a little bit too early. It squeezed the heck out of us. I was. It, it went from like it went from like twenty bucks to like five, and we were shorted at like a lot at five bucks. No, no, no. It was high, then, it was higher than. Oh that. yeah, that's right. It was higher than that. And nevertheless, I was in Japan, right, visiting financial. No, no, uh, you, you were in Maine. No, I was in. No, you're, you're missing where I'm. Where, what I remember. Oh okay. <laughs> When it was squeezing, right? You could tell the main one because that was happened too. When I was in Japan and we were looking at financial services stocks, it was one of the deepest squeezes that, that Marvel had experienced. I remember waking up at three in the morning in Japan, just like in a cold sweat, knowing I was getting squeezed. <laughs> I called up Danny. I go, where is it? He goes, go back to sleep. I go, where is it? Where's the stock? He goes, he goes Danny, just go back to sleep. You're fine. I got it. The, the great thing about Danny was no one can take pain on the short side better oh than God. Danny. Nobody. And there's nobody you want more in a bear market than Danny Moses. Oh, he doesn't God. get pulled out of the short. No, market. absolutely yeah. not. No. Nope. No. Nope. And, and, you know, he, he would not be. Yeah, he's very good. So, so waking up in a cold sweat somewhere in Tokyo, knowing that I was getting squeezed in a short. Like, I'll remember that more than a random long that we got right two, three years ago. You had this thesis for the upcoming year, which is 
Lord Voldemort, but it was really Lord Vol. Vol. That is volatility. See, he got it. Probably watched the movies. <laughs> Probably has. Um, just uh, walk through your general outlook for, for 2022 as described by Lord Vol. And maybe was it was it the Dark Lord Has Risen? It was like the, the fourth one. Um, Vincent, I think you were the originator of this metaphor. So how about we start with you and then we'll go. To no, no, this, this is all Vincent. Vincent is a pop culture nut. Yes. So this one, the genesis of this was I have read myself and read with my two kids uh, these books several times over and we watch we're, we're Harry Potter nuts, right? And so I always viewed that scene when Voldemort returns as like, it's the seminal moment in the Harry Potter series. Like evil has come back. He was gone for 13 years. And for 13 years, they lived this great world risk-free. And they never really worried about Voldemort returning. But only a few of the people knew he was coming back, right? Like the, the chief mentor, Dumbledore, knew Honig. That's why I put Honig. He's coming back. So our view was, what's going to bring... We always felt Voldemort's coming back. Volatility's coming back to markets. What's going to bring him back? And it was always to us when they can't do anything about inflation, when they have to start fighting it, they have to tighten money, then we're going to start to reveal all the, all the excesses that we've built up over the 10, 13 years. And like we're seeing right now, the minute the Fed is, is trapped and handicapped, and look, they, they might have been, I'm, I'm not sure we're in a podcast right now, and I don't know what market, markets are doing, their narrative might have been a little bit less hawkish than what the market was expecting, but let's make no bones about it. They have to continue to tighten. And as long as they continue to tighten, the volatility, is down now, by the way. volatility is going to be back in markets. And there's really not much we can do about it. And we're going to have to learn how to live with it, deal with it. And from a Seawolf perspective, our portfolio, we're going to have to manage through it, which to me meant that we have to do things at a significantly lower gross. And for the first time in ages, we could actually short many a names, not just, say, Tesla. Mm -hmm. But the hardest part, I think, for us now is going to be, you know, we took the top off a lot of these crazy shorts. We, I mean, we, again, we, we, we you know, some of these stocks are down a lot. Uh, now it's like, you know, more, it's going to be more hand-to-hand -hand combat, which, combat, which gets bloody. <laughs> and so, you know, I, you know, for people who haven't lived through a real bear market, it, it gets bloody. Very bloody. And, and just yeah. for the young, for the younger folks who did not live through it, and we try to tell some of the, our colleagues that we work with at Seawolf, bear market rallies are vicious, right? The volatility is severe. So you can't get too over your skis, even if you're short, that it's going to continue. So we look at indicators such as relative strength indices or sentiment indicators. And if, we've, if we earned, quite frankly, too much money on the short side, you have to pull back. Right. You know when you were over earning, like, yeah. um, but no one ever does anything, especially if it's going up. You know, right? Isn't the the common wisdom in shorting the opposite that you want to when it goes down, you want to add on, and then when it's working against you, you want to retract? We don't do that. We no. don't do. That. Really? Well, it it depends. <laughs> it depends. It's it's a little bit to me. It's more a little bit more complex. But if you keep pressing, I'll never forget. We talk about it. One of the more vicious bear market rallies we experienced was in the summer of 2008, 
where the bank stocks went up 50%. We were, short a, we were short a lot of Wells Fargo. Yes. And they came out with a surprise dividend hike, which no one was expecting. Kovacevic did a big F you to everybody. Yes, he did. And it, I mean, it ripped our testicles apart. And, it's just, and, so, and so our perspective is if you're pressing into that, what you're trying to do in a weird way, because every time your short works, the size of your short goes down. Yes. Right? And what a lot of people do is I want to, let's say if it was a 4% short position, it went down 50%. I hope my math is right. You're down to 2%. People are like, I want to make it 4% again. Well, you're, the way I think about it is you just added another 200 bips of risk at a much lower price, right? Wouldn't you rather take off some of your risk, particularly what we've seen, which are these vicious bear market rallies, you don't want to press into them because particularly when the RSIs are south of 20, you really should not be pressing into these things with RSI south of 20. You should probably be letting them go. You know, we had, we had a, a short squeeze that happened to us three or four days ago. You know, they announced some stupid news and stock went up 20%. And we, you know, shorted everything we had and more uh, up there. And when the stock came back down to where it was, we took off that extra cap. Right. But, you know, it takes takes balls. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And, and I, more, than, more than just stones, it takes, in my opinion, to have a fundamental perspective yep. on the underlying stocks. So I've, I've always said this to a friend. It's like, you know, we fancy ourselves value investors. I go, I'll give you one of the most negative traits of value investors you'll ever hear. Is they are the most arrogant people you'll ever meet in your life. And, and, and they won't, you won't see it in a personality, but you'll see it in the way they talk about stocks. They have a certain view and a belief system that a company is worth X, right? And if it goes below X, shit, I'll just buy more. Because and if it goes way below that, they'll buy more. They'll buy more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm right, market's wrong. I mean, that's kind of a definition of arrogance, right? Uh, you're not respecting what the market's giving it. We do that sometimes too. Right? Yeah. Our value. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm, so we're guilty of yeah. that. Um, but I'm, we're okay with it because... We feel like we, as a typical value investor, we have a hands on the fundamentals that we think we're right and the market's wrong. Yeah. I guess we're arrogant, but you know, it is what it is. But do you, do you guys mess around with options? I mean, if, if, if Lord Vol has arisen, isn't it time to buy some Vol? Well, no, I, we don't do a lot of options investing because we've gotten our faces ripped off too many times or pissing away money and not faces ripped off. We, I would say faces ripped no, off. We just, we just lose, just lose. We take a lot of chances and, you know, we famously made a lot of money in uh, in a derivative, yes. In, 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 well, also shorting cons when when uh, yes, we did. We had a ton. We weren't that famous for that. No, we, were we not just famous. got Met jerseys for it, but we weren't famous for it. No, but uh, cons the furniture store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Know, yeah, yeah. yeah, they they blew up on credit a long time ago, and and no one had that thesis, and we we had a truckload of puts on, and so that was that was kind of fun, but but typically we don't. We don't do options. My, my issue with options is twofold, right? And, and if they're a fine instrument, and, and if my brain doesn't work well with options, whereas others, for other brains, it does. One, it truncates your duration. And back to our discussion, if you want unlimited duration, I don't know when our theories are going to work. That's so, a problem. So as a result of it, options sort of require me to be right at a certain amount of time. The other thing, which is a bit more cynical, is, is that Options are controlled by the house, which are broker dealers. And I think they, A, charge a premium for the junkies that love to play in the option markets. And B, when it comes to option expirations, they played a, a lot of monkey games to make sure that the, all these options fall out of the money or where the brokers make more money 
on their side versus versus where the speculators are. So the combination of the two makes me very skeptical of using options. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think like if let's say MSOS taking that as a proxy for for right. marijuana, if over the next two years that it's at twenty now, about if it stays at twenty dollars, your thirty dollar call option for two years will expire worthless. Correct. Even if it goes up to two hundred dollars from twenty twenty four to twenty twenty five. Um. Well. Uh, Porter and Vincent, it has been an absolute pleasure getting the chance to pick your brains. Thank you so much. I'm very grateful. and I, I think our, our audience will be as well. Uh, my final thing I want to say is Seawolf 2.0, your fund is now your money, family office. I understand that you are thinking about perhaps maybe taking on some some new money. If you were to consider that and people wanted to reach out, uh, where could where could they find you? Uh, Twitter's probably the best uh, place to find us. I'm I'm at Seawolf Cap, and I'm at VD seven one eight. Yeah, yeah. So and you know we'll be if we do take money, we'll be not institutional money probably. Yes, I mean it's it's very important for us for people to have the same philosophical mindset of how we're managing this money. Um, you know we are accepting duration volatility uh, in in to create outsized returns. So there's some wild swings in our portfolio. Would it safely say that last year, 2021, was the best investment year you've ever had? Well, the short year was pretty good too. Yeah. But 2021 wasn't better? Return return rate-wise, yes, it was better. Yeah. Well, Porter. Thank you. That's it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks.